0: If you have your Bible today, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Luke. We'll be in Luke chapter 6, and we will begin in verse 17. Luke chapter 6 and verse 17, and uh, the text that we're going to look at today has caused a lot of discussion and frankly um, a bit of confusion both among Bible scholars and churchgoers alike. We're going to look at Jesus's Sermon on the Plain. His Sermon on the Plain, now... That may kind of uh, may kind of strike you as odd because you didn't know that there were planes in the Bible. I'm not talking about a Boeing, I'm talking about a flat place as opposed to a mountain. And but that still might kind of strike you as strange because you may be familiar with the Sermon on the Mount and you may not have even realized there was a sermon on the plain. And maybe maybe you did, maybe you remember that, but you didn't remember that there were really any differences between Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel in, in the, the record of these things. Um, but I, I want you to know that there are some significant differences and some significant similarities. We're going to highlight some of those things when we get to the text. And just to remind you where we are um, from last week, You remember Jesus chose some of the d- disciples to be apostles. Now, remember, a disciple is a learner. It's somebody that learned from Christ. Uh, that was not an uncommon thing back then. Many people were disciples of different rabbis and stuff. But an apostle was not just a disciple. But an apostle was somebody who was sent. And so Jesus set apart 12 of the disciples to be apostles, and he was going to send them out. They were going to be the basis, they were going to be the foundation of the early church. They were going to have, uh, uh, be tasked with his administration and teaching and so forth. And so not every disciple was an apostle, but every apostle was a disciple. So Jesus chose those twelve, he set them apart, we looked at, at uh, the people that he chose last time, and then he comes down from the mountain, we're going to look at this today, and there were a lot of people down at the bottom of the mountain waiting. He, was, he began to teach them to cast out demons, to perform miracles and healings and different things like that, and it's in the midst of this, uh, this teaching that we get our text today. Now if you look at your Bible, if your Bible's like mine, you'll notice that basically all the rest of chapter 6 is all in red. Because the, the words of Christ are in red in many of our Bibles, we're not going to read the whole thing, uh, the, the whole rest of the chapter today. We're just going to focus on the first part. Now, this is the first time we've had an extended section of Jesus' teaching in Luke's gospel. And so we're going to break this up a bit at a time, and we're going to start with what they call the Beatitudes. So if you found Luke chapter 6, I'd ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word if you're able. And we're going to pick up in verse 17. It says, Jesus came down with them, that's the apostles, and stood on a level place. And there was a large crowd of His disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear Him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were being troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the people were trying to touch Him, for power was coming from Him and healing them all. And turning His gaze towards His disciples, He began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. "'Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. "'Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. "'Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you "'and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. "'Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, "'your reward is great in heaven, "'for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. "'But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. "'Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry.'" Woe to you, who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when men shall speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Thank you, you may be seated now, as we begin, i want to, uh, I want to address what you might call the elephant in the room, and the elephant in the room with our text is this: as you read through this, and remembering what you know about the Sermon on the Mount and, and what Matthew records. You'll, you'll notice that there are some significant differences. And so the question that is, that is raised, the, the elephant is in the room, is this. Are Matthew and Luke in conflict with one another? Now, our knee-jerk reaction, if we take seriously uh, the, the Bible's claim of inerrancy, that, that it's not in error, it's, it's not going to be in conflict with itself, our knee-jerk reaction is to say, well, no, and then just move on. But I want to go deeper than that because I want you to see why it is not in conflict. Because what's going to happen is when you talk to uh, the unbelieving friend that you have, the unbelieving neighbor or coworker or family member, this is the type of stuff they hone in on. Because there are some similarities and there are some differences. And so, and maybe it's just you watch TV, uh, like the Discovery Channel and stuff like that. Sometimes they have people on, they're supposed to be experts in the Bible that talk about the Scriptures, and they don't believe them. They're not, many of them are not believers, they don't, they don't believe that the Bible is inspired by God or anything like that and so they talk about supposed errors in the Bible. So I want us to look at what the text actually says and see if it is in conflict or not. Now what are some similarities between Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel in these teachings? Well first, both the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain are addressed to, to the disciples. Second, they both start, start with statements that are of blessing called beatitudes. That comes from a Latin word that means blessing. Um, it, it starts with beatitudes and it ends with much of the same teaching. Yet, uh, and you remember, you remember the, the word uh, blessed or blessed here it has the idea of, of fortunate or happy. And, and, uh, and third, the wording of the beatitudes is very similar in, in a lot of ways. Now, those are the main ways that it's the same. How are they different? Well, for one, the location of its delivery seems to be different. Because there's the sermon on the mount, and here we have him on a flat place, and a mount is not the same thing as a flat place. So, a mount and a plane is one difference. Matthew's version applies things more spiritually. So, we see things like, Blessed are the not poor, but the poor, what? You remember? Poor in spirit. For there is the kingdom of heaven. And here we have, blessed are the poor. And so we have, it seems almost like a, a more of a, a spiritual application in Matthew. Third, Luke's gospel has pronouncement of woes, which are totally absent in Matthew. So you don't get woe to the rich or, or the well-fed or, or those who laugh and so forth. Number four, in Matthew it says that Jesus, do you remember his bodily position whenever he taught them? In the Sermon on the Mount, the Bible says that he sat down and he taught the people. In this text, it says that he went down to the plain and he stood. And so they say, well, there's a difference. You can't be standing and sitting at the same time. And there are some significant differences in length. Because Matthew's version, his Sermon on the Mount, takes up most of chapters 5, 6, and 7. And in Luke's gospel, we have part of one chapter. So those are some significant differences and some similarities. So... How do we sort this out? Well, some people sort it out this way. They say, well, there are so many similarities, this is the same teaching, but there are all these differences, therefore it's an error. And then they extrapolate from that and they say, well, if it's an error here, then we can't trust the Bible anywhere because we don't know where else there's error, and so they disbelieve the scriptures. There are a couple of solutions that, are, that I think either one of them could be um, the correct answer. They're both plausible. They both make sense. The first is that this is the same teaching, but a close reading of the gospel shows there's not actually any difficulties. So, in this scenario, here's the, here's the order of, of what's happened. Jesus has an all-night prayer vigil up on the mountain, so to speak. So he prays, he spends the night talking to the Father, he chooses the twelve of his disciples, he comes down the mountain with the twelve, and there he's greeted with a large number of people who have come for healing and, and exorcism and things like that. The Bible says that he stood on a level spot and he did these things. Now, that would be a natural bodily position if people are coming to you, right? If people are coming to you to be healed and, and, to, and all these people are trying to, to touch him because, because touching him evidently was bringing healing, it would be natural for him not to be sitting down. Have you ever been sitting down and somebody walks up to talk to you? It's kind of, kind of uncomfortable, isn't it? We naturally stand up. And so it, it would be natural for him to be standing. And if you read Luke's gospel closely, it does not say that he stood to teach them, but just that he went down and he stood and all these people came to him. So there's no, uh, there's no con- uh, contradiction between their, his bodily positions. Then after he had done all these healings in, in this scenario, he had done all these healings, then he went up on the mount a little ways so that the people could better spread out and hear him. And there he sat down and taught. There again, uh, it, it, makes, it makes logical sense. And if, again, if you read carefully, Luke's gospel does not say that he taught even in the plain, just that he went down and that's where everybody met him. So it's quite possible that he went back up on the mountain, at least a little ways, and he sat down to teach. So that is that, is, that takes care of that part. But what about the differences in the content? Well, in this uh, scenario... The differences in teaching could be that Luke is giving us a summary of the teaching. So Matthew has a more expanded version, blessed are not the poor, but the poor in spirit. Luke just kind of chops off the end of it. And in in that case, for instance, there's an Aramaic word that means both poor and poor in spirit. One word. So it's possible that this is just a summation of what he said if this is the same teaching. that satisfactorily resolves this issue, I think. The other solution, and this is the way that I tend to lean, is that this is not the same teaching. These are two different instances where Jesus teaches the people. And that would easily explain the differences between them. Because Jesus didn't have TV. He didn't have the internet. He didn't have radio. He didn't have a means of mass communication. He traveled around and he taught people over and over and over again. So it would be natural for him, as he's laying out the the, the, the lifestyle of the kingdom, it would be natural for him to t- to deliver some of these same teachings or at least to touch on the same themes. So he may do it here uh, one day and then two weeks later do the same content over there. And if you've ever been in a classroom, you know that it is virtually impossible. In fact, I, I would say apart from divine... Uh, a a divine miracle of the highest order, it's impossible to give the same lecture, the same information verbatim between two classes. And if you've ever been in in a classroom and you've sat through two lectures, for instance, from the same teacher of the same content, just in two different classes, you know they're not exactly the same. Because... What happens is you may have a different emphasis with one class that you don't have in another. You may get some feedback from somebody where you answer a question or, or somebody's kind of looking at you like, a, uh, like they don't understand, so you try to explain a little bit differently, a little bit different wording. Um, also, if this is not the same teaching exactly as Matthew, the, the slight differences give us a deeper picture of what he's teaching than if he just would have done it verbatim. Uh, both times. So, I think that those things, uh, that, that explains the, the difference in location, the difference in bodily position, that explains the difference in wording. I think, I think this most easily explains the two differences. Either way, the issue is not an issue. Because there's no need to see this as a contradiction because it's the same guy teaching both places, right? It's Jesus. So, That's the elephant in the room. I just want you to know that ahead of time because, like I said, sometimes we we talk to people and they say, oh, yeah, well, what about this? And sometimes we're caught flat-footed because we we just don't, don't know, don't remember that there are differences, never thought through it. So, anyway, let's look at what Jesus has to say starting in verse 20. He starts out with some blessings. And remember, this has the idea of happiness or being fortunate. And you'll notice he says that it says that he turned towards his disciples and gave this teaching. So remember there are three different groups of people in this picture of Jesus. There are the apostles, the 12 that came down with him. There are the disciples which in this case talks about the larger crowd of people who were following Jesus, who were learning from him. And then there was this great crowd of people who had come to get something from him. They had come to maybe hear this new rabbi, they had come for healing they come because they wanted to see what this guy was all about so there's this crowd of uh, a mixed crowd you might say that just came and they got to hear it too because it, it seems to me that jesus turned to the disciples and he gave this teaching and everybody else had the privilege of listening in okay so jesus gives this teaching and i think the key to this passage is passage is in verse 22 if you'll if you'll notice what it says It says that this rejection, this hunger, and this poverty, and I think they're all rooted, I think they're all linked, and they're all rooted, I believe, in being on account of the Son of Man. Said another way, Jesus is warning them ahead of time of some of the difficulties they're going to face because they're his followers. Jesus is telling them what life in the kingdom is like. And the first thing that he says, he says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the poor. Now, the subtle difference, as I said, one of the subtle differences is uh, between Matthew and Luke is Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke says, blessed are the poor. But you'll also notice there's a difference in, do you remember first person, second person, third person in, in uh, uh, English? So third person, he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, in Matthew. In Luke, in second person, he said, blessed are you blessed are you poor so there's a a subtle difference and the question we must immediately ask is whether or not jesus is giving a a blanket statement that anybody who's in poverty is blessed simply because they don't have any money now think about this are they are people blessed because they're poor regardless of the reason they're poor if somebody, let's say, is too lazy to do a good day's work and they get fired and now they don't have any money, are they blessed by God because they were lazy? What about the person who, who, who is poor for whatever reason but yet they hate God in their hearts? It, is Jesus saying they're blessed even if they hate God? Well, the answer to that is obviously, I hope it's obvious, it's no. Listen, there... Jesus is not giving a a blanket statement. There's no virtue in poverty just because they're impoverished. That that is not what he's saying. Likewise, when he mentions those who are hungry, there's no virtue in skipping breakfast and being hungry. There's no virtue even in having all the food that you eating all the food you have and still being hungry. There's no virtue in that. These things are pictures. For instance, Psalm 107 verse 9 says, for he, speaking of God, has satisfied the thirsty soul, and the hungry soul he has filled, and we expect with food, right? doesn't say that. He is filled with what is good. Echoing that in her Magnificat, Mary said in Luke chapter 1, verse 53, He has filled the hungry with good things, and sent away the rich empty-handed. He also goes on to talk about those who weep, Are are blessed now. The wording that's used here is a sob or wailing, as opposed to quietly crying. So is Jesus saying, "If you ugly cry all the time, you're extra blessed." Thankfully, no, I don't do well with crying, and I'm glad that that's not the case. All these all these pictures, I think, are linked to one another, and they're linked to verse 22. I believe. And that is that all these things are happening because of our relationship to Jesus and therefore we experience His blessing. He's telling us what the kingdom is like both here and now, but also in the future. Because notice, if, if you would, and don't, don't miss this, if you'll notice right at the end of these blessings two of the four times, He uses the word now. And the other two times, there's the language of immediacy. In other words, what He's saying is this is the way things are right now. And that makes us naturally think, well, what about in the future? And that's the emphasis here. And what he's saying is there are people who get puffed up. They're, they're proud. They're full. They're satisfied. They're, they're, they're not poor. They are rich. And they feel that they have no need of God. They have no need of Jesus. They don't mourn. They don't weep over their sin. That's one type of person. Jesus says the other type of person is the one who bets it all on Jesus. This is the type of person who trusts in Him. So what does the kingdom life look like? It looks like upside down from all the world thinks. The Christian life is upside down from the world's perspective. See, to the world, who is the person who is fortunate and happy? Who is the person who has money in the bank? Who is satisfied with life? Who has food in their belly, who has all these things, they, they, they're not sad because of their sin or, or because of anything else. Those are, the, those are the happy ones. Those are the blessed ones. And Jesus turns that on its head. He said, that's not the way it is in my kingdom. The blessed person, the happy person, the fortunate soul is not the one who laughs and smiles now, but later has cause to weep. The blessed and happy soul is the one who weeps and grieves over their sin. And they experience sorrow as people turn away from Jesus who turn away from them because of Jesus, that's the blessed person because they have weeping now, but one day that's all going to change. Blessed is the person who is not satisfied and full, thinking that they they have no need of God. But the person that's blessed is the one who recognizes their spiritual poverty. They recognize that they need Jesus. They may be financially poor, but they are rich toward God. That's what the kingdom looks like. It takes the world's values and inverts them. It turns it on its head. But its teaching goes beyond that because the Bible tells us, and Jesus later in, in, in the Gospels calls us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Him. The Bible says that all who, who live a godly life will be persecuted. That may result in somebody, let's say, losing their livelihood because of their faith. They won't bow the knee. They hold fast their integrity. They won't succumb to the societal pressures, for instance, to say that homosexuality and homosexual lifestyle is a moral good. They won't affirm the profaning of marriage. They won't say that that the, the slaughter of the unborn is okay in God's sight. These are people that will tell Caesar, Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord, and Caesar is, is obligated to bow down to him, to follow him, and to do what he says. These are people who will stand up for what's right, and it's going to cost them. Now, we see this happening elsewhere in the world. I think especially in places like China and some of the Middle Eastern countries, where people are systematically taken to re-education camps, who are murdered, who are tortured because of the name of Jesus. And we don't have that here. We don't have that in our country. We have had an easy Christianity. Listen, some of this stuff is starting to creep over into our our nation. Some of these pressures are starting to to, to mount where you're not going to be able to have a job if you refuse to call a dude in a dress, a woman. That's a man playing dress up. And I know even what I just said, this is going to be on YouTube, that alone is enough to get us kicked off YouTube right now. This stuff isn't here full force yet, but it is coming this way. Listen, this stuff may result in weeping. It may result in being ostracized. But notice again that word, now. That's the condition of things right now, but one day things are going to be different. When the kingdom is consummated, all these things, all these weepings and and the privations and, and the difficulties... All that's going to be done away. The poor will be made rich. The weeping will be made happy. They will laugh and experience joy. And the things that that, that once caused pain and and all the bad in our lives, those things will be done away with. And it will be a a distant memory. But now, Jesus says, you're going to have some bad times. But you'll notice he finishes up with a section of woes. Now, this is not woe as opposed to giddy-up. This is woe as in this is bad. This is a pronouncement of judgment, a pronouncement of condemnation. It's a warning. And Jesus issues a number of warnings. He says, woe to the rich. Those people who are satisfied with their material goods, they don't think they have anything to worry about. They feel secure in their possessions. They don't recognize their need for the Lord. He says, woe to those who are well fed and and those who laugh. Not because there's anything inherently wrong with laughter. Laughter is a gift from God. I'm thankful for laughter. I'm thankful for food, obviously. I mean, we, we, th- these things are not bad. But listen, there is a day coming when our money's going to fail us, when our prosperity is going to fail us, when all these things that we once took joy and pleasure in, all those things will, will pass away one of these days. And all those times that people laughed and scoffed as, as the preacher pled with them to turn to Christ, all the times when, when mom and dad and friends and relatives pled with them to turn to Christ and consider eternity, they couldn't be bothered with those things. And Jesus says, Woe to you. Woe to you. This is a warning. It's a pronouncement of condemnation. Don't be like that because one day your laughing will be turned to weeping. Now, Probably a lot of us here would say, "Well, I don't have much to worry about because I'm not rich." If you saw my bank account, Pastor, you'd know you might as well just keep on talking about something else because I don't have it. That's what we think, isn't it? Listen, I'm going to challenge that because we this this I think is an especially big danger for each of us in America. Because by the world standards, by American standards, we may not be rich by the world standards each of us is. I recently heard, I don't know if it's accurate or not, but somebody recently heard uh, say that if you have shoes on your feet, you have more than half the world's population. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but the gist of it's true. We have a lot more than what a lot of people have. What am I talking about? You say, Pastor, I, I, I don't have that much. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, because you might be guilty. How many of us here have seasonal wardrobes? Now, it's hard to have those in Missouri, because one day you need shorts, the next day you need a sweater. So you can't. it's hard to have that. And I don't hear that so much these days, but used to, when I was growing up, I remember hearing people saying, well, I put away the summer clothes, and I got out the winter clothes. You ever said something like that? Pastor, that's not me. That's Just keep on going. Well, I'll keep on going. How many times have you opened your closet? You you couldn't fit another hanger in there if your life depended on it. Stuff's falling out. You got shoes piled up knee high. I mean, you look at it, and here's what you say with a straight face. (sighs) I don't have, what, anything to wear. Oh, you've said it before. (laughs) Guilty. Guilty. But yeah, no, there you go, the right thing. What what many of us mean, it, see, it's not, I don't have anything to wear. If you look and all you have is empty hangers, that's when you don't have anything to wear. What you really mean is I'm so prosperous, what I have is not suitable to me anymore because I've worn these clothes more than two or three times, and so I need to go out and buy a new shirt, a new pair of pants, a new dress, a new outfit, whatever it is. That's what we really mean. Or what we mean is, We look at it and see all these clothes. And this is the guiltiest charge. We'll look at it and we'll say, I don't have anything to wear. What we really mean is, I don't have anything that still fits me. And it's not because we are, are so destitute, we've lost so much weight that all of our clothes are falling off of us, is it? It's because we've gone to the kitchen that we look in the cabinet and in the fridge, leftovers falling out all over the place and we say, I don't have anything to eat in this house no we have all kinds of stuff to eat and because we have all kinds of stuff to eat we get some fat we can't fit in our clothes am i wrong no i'm not wrong and you know it's the truth because we are so prosperous in our nation even when we don't have a lot you think that person i've seen pictures of, of people in some foreign countries that made shoes out of a water bottle and we've got shoes bags and boxes of shoes and what do we say? Well, this isn't quite the right shade. I better go get me some more. And then we turn around with a straight face and say, I don't have anything to wear. I'm not rich. I'm not, I don't have anything. Baloney. And there's a danger in here because Jesus says, woe to you who are rich. We can let those those things, those riches become focuses in our lives. Luke said, er, Jesus said in Luke twelve fifteen. Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. We would be wise to heed Jesus' warning. Because he's talking to us. You can be rich in this world and a pauper towards God. And what a terrible trade it is to make listen there's nothing inherently pious about being in poverty there's not many times God blesses his people for the purpose of blessing others he'll bless his people so they can use their resources to fund ministry and further his kingdom not always but many times he does and when we begin to count on our bank account and our 401k and we forget our dependence on God We've, we've gone off track. We're in the wrong. We are fools. God's way is the opposite way of the world's way. So then the question that we have to ask ourselves is, do I, do you, recognize your need for Him? Do we recognize, or do we just give lip service to it because we're at church on Sunday morning? Do we recognize our spiritual poverty? Because the only thing we bring to Christ is Our sin. Our righteousness, our, our righteous deeds are filthy rags. The only thing we bring to salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. There's an old hymn that says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And the question is, will you do that today? Have you surrendered to the King of Heaven? Will you lay down your arms... Will you lay down all your rebellion and surrender to the King of Heaven? Say, well, I've done that. Well, Christian, do you live like Jesus is Lord? Do you take up your cross? Do you deny yourself? Do you follow Him? Because that's the high call of discipleship. In this life, we're never going to fully Deny ourselves. It's not going to happen. But on a daily basis, Jesus calls us to day after day to take up our cross and follow Him. Once you stand with me as musicians come, and as you stand ask you bow your heads and close your eyes. Yeah, nobody looking around. I just want to ask you. Do your values line up more with Christ's kingdom or the world's kingdom? Are you are your values get ahead, get more money in the bank? nothing wrong with, with saving, nothing wrong with planning, those things are, are good to do. But when we start to get our eyes off the giver and put them on the gift, we've, we've gone off track. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that it's such a, a difficult thing to daily deny ourselves because it feels good to indulge ourselves but we know that's not what you've called us to do you've called us to you've said that we should enjoy the fruits of our labors that's a gift of god but god you've also called us to be a blessing to others and help us to do that to get our eyes off of ourselves and to serve others God, for that person who's, um, who's wrapped up in the ways of the world and they don't, um, they don't see anything wrong with it, help them to see Christ in His glory and that the, the, the way of the world ends in death. But the way of Christ brings eternal life. Help them to see that and, and respond positively to that today to, to put their faith in Christ. God, I thank you that you uh, that that you didn't sugarcoat anything. You gave us a warning ahead of time, and help us, God, to live the way you want us to in these difficult days and in the ones that may be ahead. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.